Wow. Isn't Jesus good? So, it's my privilege to be able to share the sixth sign from the Gospel of John. It's been very interesting as Pastor Chris and I have been sharing uh, the preaching for this message because Pastor Chris has had a few signs that, you know, I'll be talking to him as he's preparing. He's like, there's three lines here, and I've got a 40-minute sermon to talk about. You know, the Lord's going to have to help me pull out the deep nuggets of truth, and he's done beautifully with that. I've kind of had the opposite problem. Every sign that I've shared about, it took me three or four weeks to teach in my Bible study. And so I asked Chris for permission to have a three-hour sermon today, and he said, he said no, so you're, all, you're okay. Um, but there's a lot here. And as we approach the Word of God, I want to remind us of something. John's gospel has a very specific objective. Each gospel has a different audience. Each gospel has a different theme. The gospel of John, from the very beginning, when John says, in the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that through him all things were made, and there's nothing that was made that he didn't make. That's his thesis statement. That's him shooting his, uh, his cannonball over, over the bow of the ship and saying, this is what I'm writing about. This man that I testify to is not just a prophet. He's not just the chosen Messiah. He is God. And every sign is going to be pointing to his divinity. And there are several different points that we're going to be exploring today. I had a conversation with a, with a gentleman before I started, and he said, you know, Jeff, I appreciate your sermons, but there's a lot in them. And sometimes it's hard to keep track of all the points. And I will confess I've heard that before. Today will be another day like that. And so I recommend if you're a note taker, take some notes. I also plan to send my PowerPoint to the church, so if we have you in our email, you can review it, because I don't want us to miss anything. There's a treasure chest in this little story. And as I mentioned when I was preaching on Titus, we study the Word of God here, and I want us to be astonished by it. I want it to change us. We want to eat from the meat of the Word. I don't want us to be babies drinking just the milk. There is meat here. So I want you to get out your forks and your steak knives and, and loosen your pants a little bit because we're going to fill up today. So there are seven points that I'd like to address today. The first one is the context. You know, we're talking about all these signs that Jesus is doing, but there are things that are happening in between the signs that help us get a picture of what's going on and how it's affecting his environment. Secondly, there's a question that is asked before Jesus heals the blind man. And the video just started like a tick after that question. And so the question that his disciples asked was, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that caused him to be born blind? So after we talk about the context, we're going to address this question and how Jesus answers it and how we're to understand the idea of suffering and our response to it. Then we're going to look at the miracle itself. This is done in a little bit of a different way, right, with the spit and the pool and the mud. So we're going to talk about how this miracle happens, the reaction to that miracle, then the interrogation, 
Jesus' second encounter with the man, and then the sign. Uh, I don't know if you saw all that, but we're going to start with the context. So from chapter 7 through 9, Jesus has gone down to the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths. And this is one of the high feasts among the Jews at this time. And it's done to commemorate the 40 years in the desert where the people lived in tents and the tabernacle was there and there was the light, the fire by night and the cloud by day and the way that God provided for them in the desert, the way he was there with them through the desert. And so people, if you could, you were required to come down to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast People lived in tents through that week to kind of experience what it must have been like to be in the desert those 40 years. And so Jesus goes down secretly to this festival. Now, Jesus has already been shaking things up. He's been moving from Jerusalem back up to Galilee. He's been healing people. He's been preaching. He fed the 5,000. Word is getting out that this guy is something special. And all of these people, people from all over the country, are descending on Jerusalem. And there's already a lot of controversy about Jesus. There's a lot of speculation about him. A lot of people are asking, could he be the Messiah? And other people are saying, well, he couldn't be the Messiah. He's from Galilee. He's a sinner. He hangs out with prostitutes and tax collectors. And others are saying, no, he's healing. He's doing miracles. His teaching has authority. So everyone in the city is buzzing about Jesus. And this has not gone unnoticed by the religious leaders. They're threatened. They're angry. And the wolves are beginning to gather. The seeds of conspiracy are already beginning as Jesus goes down to this festival. And then we find Jesus decides in the middle of the controversy, I think I'm going to shake things up a little bit more. I'm going to make it clear who I am. Now, I've said this before, and it bears repeating. There are many, many people who will say, Jesus never said he was the Son of God. Jesus never said he was God. Jesus never said he was the Messiah. That is not true. He says it in so many ways that one has to be willfully blind to reject it. And in many ways, that's the theme of today's message. So here we are, we're at the, the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, and there are several things that go on during this week of festivities. And one of them has to do with the Pool of Siloam. There's a procession. Priests from the temple go down to the Pool of Siloam, and they collect jugs of water. And then they lead the people back to the temple, and they pour the water out. And the purpose of this is to remember how God provided for them in the desert. When they were thirsty, when they were dying, how Moses struck the rock and the water came forward and they were saved. And so during this time where people are gathered and they're pouring the water out, in the silence, as they're remembering God's provision, Jesus steps up. And he makes a declaration. He says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Later in the festival, there's another ceremony. It's called the illumination of the temple. 
And the priest would light these tall golden oil lamps that were many, many feet tall. They were, they were 75 feet high. There's a picture here of what it might have looked like. And it illuminated the whole city. And it was to recall God's presence with them in the desert through the fire by night where his light was abiding with them. His presence was with them. God, Yahweh, was the light they were commemorating. And as the city's eyes focused on the temple, Jesus stands up again. And he spoke and he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is declaring who he is. We talked about this a few weeks ago. When Jesus said, I am, which he does throughout the Gospel of John, he makes several I am statements. And every time he does this, he uses the emphatic form of the verb, which means I and only I. It's the same I am that Yahweh spoke to Moses when he said, I am that I am. This is my name. This is who sent you. When they ask you who sent you, tell them I am sent you. Jesus is standing there in the midst of the ceremony where people are remembering Yahweh with them and saying, I am with you now. He's already said, I am the bread of life. Only I satisfy. He says, I am the living water. That's what he said to the woman at the well, and he says this again during the pouring out from the pool of Siloam. And now he says, I am the light of the world. Now Jesus is going to make good on his word. He knows that people aren't going to take his testimony alone. And he basically says, look, don't take my word for it, but believe the miracles. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. I'm going to make good on my statements. It says, he's going to say this later in John 10. He says, even though you don't believe me, Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. I'm not just going to say it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to show you who I am. So at this point, Jesus was walking with his disciples and they come across the blind man. And the question is posed, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus' answer is very important. I want us to hear this. He said, it was not that this man sinned or that his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, the question of the disciples showed a theological bias, a misunderstanding of what it is in our relationship with God. It was almost like the idea of, of karma that we find in Eastern religions, a relationship of reciprocity. I do for God, he does for me. The idea that if I'm blessed, I'm good. If I'm suffering, I'm bad. And Jesus says, no, this is not the way it works in my Father's kingdom. Now, I want to be clear. Jesus said there is the principle of reaping and sowing. And when we reap sin, there will be consequences. There will be pain. There will be destruction. But that doesn't explain the suffering that we have in humanity. That doesn't explain what's happening in Turkey today with people 
under rubble. It doesn't explain people with cancer. It doesn't explain people that are suffering in their relationships, that are suffering from depression, that are wondering why life is so hard. And Jesus makes it clear, this is not because you personally have sinned. This is a consequence of sin with a capital S. This is a consequence of the fall. This is a consequence of us living in a broken world. There will be suffering. But Jesus came to alleviate that suffering, to bind up the sick, to free the captive, to restore sight to the blind. And all of that is to give God glory and to display his glory through your suffering. Too often we are concerned about why am I suffering? Why is that person going through such difficulty? And I want to encourage you that those questions, unless God prompts you that it is a choice that you've made and a correction is called for, but if you've done a spiritual inventory, you've asked the Holy Spirit to show you, and you come up with, I don't know, then that's sufficient. We don't have to know. Rather than asking why, we should ask, what now? God, what will you do in this situation to give you glory? How can you use my suffering to declare your goodness? When we look at the Bible, we look at the stories, we don't see the champions of God living happy, stress-free, easy, carefree lives. There's a, there's a slide where it says Bible heroes with a question mark. It's the next slide, yes. Peter, crucified. Stephen, stoned to death. Poor Joseph, thrown in a pit by his brothers. And let's not forget Job. Job hadn't sinned, yet God allowed his suffering. And ultimately, it was for his glory. So when we are encountering an issue, a problem, something which is beyond our control and beyond explanation, we have to remember that God will redeem it and he will use it for his glory. To show us more of who Christ is to develop something good within us and to provide an opportunity for us to be a witness in this world. The most powerful witnesses to the goodness of God are people walking through the valley with praise on their lips and thanksgiving and gratitude and faith and expectation that my Redeemer lives, my redemption is coming, God's promises will be fulfilled, and his eye is on me. He sees me. He sustains me. He binds up my wounds, and he comforts me. And in this moment, I can shine for Jesus, or I can grumble and complain. But if you shine, people will see that your Father is with you. So let's talk about the miracle itself. We've discussed this issue of sin, who sinned. What's really interesting about miracles is that we see a lot of miracles throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, yet we never see a healing of the blind except Jesus. He's the only one that actually heals a blind person. 
Now, I don't know what kind of healing the disciples did when they were sent off. We know that they did miracles and they cast demons out. But there's no record that anyone other than Jesus healed a blind person. So what does he do? He spits in the mud. He makes a little paste, puts it on the guy's eyes, sends him to go wash in that pool of Siloam. Seems a little strange. Seems a little different. So let's talk first about the mud. John, again, is calling our memory, calling our attention to Jesus' divinity. And he's calling us back to Genesis chapter 2, where God creates man from the mud of the earth. And what's really interesting about the verb used when he created man, when he fashioned man, is it's different than the word used for everything else created. Everything else in the Bible created uses a particular Hebrew verb, but in this case, it's special. It speaks to a loving artist crafting with his own hands an intimate, an intimate concentration, creating the pinnacle of all that he had made. It's loving, it's personal, and it speaks to our special value and worth in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is doing the same thing. He is crafting new eyes for this man. He is showing himself as the creator. He is showing himself as the loving artist, restoring to its original function something that had been lost. Then we got the spit. Now, it's interesting because the same miracles referred to in Mark chapter 8, and in Mark chapter 8, he actually refers to Jesus spitting right in the guy's eye. What is this about? Well, a lot of commentators have said this is speaking to the fact that when we are confronted with the gospel, when we're confronted with truth, when the light comes in, there's an offense. There's a shock. When we come to know the truth about who God is, who we are, the nature of sin, the cost of redemption, it's bracing. It's painful. We retreat from it. There's an offense in the gospel because it says I'm a sinner and it says that I'm helpless and it says that I'm deserving of hell. And yet there's also an invitation for cleansing and wholeness and healing. But the offense happens first. When light comes into the darkness, it hurts. How many of you guys have been in like a dark movie theater and then you come out in the bright new sun and it's it hurts the eyes. We have to shelter from it. We recoil from it initially until we can adjust to the new reality. That spit, that slap, that light, we have to be our attention. He's grabbing us. He's shaking us. We have to listen. We have to know the truth of who we are. We have to know we need a Savior before we'll come to a Savior. We'll have to know that we have sinned before we can embrace and have gratitude for his atonement of that sin. Transformation doesn't happen without that first shock, that first offense. So what's the reaction? Well, in, in verses 8, it says, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't that the same man who used to sit and beg? 
people noticed. They saw the change. When light comes into a life, when our eyes are opened, when salvation comes, when we're born again from the dead, people ought to be able to see a difference. I've got a picture of a couple cars up here. When I was in high school, I used to carpool with a buddy of mine. His name was Sean. He had a truck. And his truck looked very much like the picture you see on the right. I don't know if he'd ever heard of a trash bag or knew what cleaning a car meant, but every day the pile would go bigger. And then one day, I remember he picked me up for swim practice, and I hop in, and it's spotless. And I'm thinking, okay, who is she? <laughs> Something had to have happened for this transformation, for this change. It's dramatic, and I saw it. The minute I opened the door, I knew something was different. That's how it should be with us. Have you ever known somebody for quite a while, maybe a workmate, a neighbor, even a relative, and suddenly they tell you, well, I'm a Christian, or I go to church, and you're like, you? And you're like, wait a minute, but you who, you, you're, I've been, I've been knowing you a long time, and this is a surprise to me. Believe me, we don't want that testimony. We don't want when we tell people we love Jesus, follow Jesus, serve Jesus, for them to be surprised. In fact, we want them to come up to us and say, what is it about you? We should look different. A born-again person must be a different person. Their life should be changed, and it should be evident for the world to see. So there are different reactions. When the light comes in, when the truth is revealed, there are three ways that people respond generally. One is with faith. Another is with fear. And another is with fury. And we see all three reactions here. We see the blind man who is suddenly grateful and bold and consistent and changed. But then we've got his parents I don't know, ask him. He's of age. And then we have the Pharisees who are angry. When the truth comes and the light shines and our eyes are opened, there can be a tendency to fear. What is this going to mean for me? What are my friends going to think? Am I going to get canceled? Am I going to be suddenly a hater? Am I going to be marginalized? Am I going to lose that opportunity for a promotion? There can also be anger because I see suddenly the gospel confronts me with who I am and I don't like it. And I'm going to fight against it because it's threatening to my status, my pride, my power. And even for those of us that know the truth, there's always more light that comes. When we came to Christ, we got a picture of salvation. But I know every day when we pray and the Holy Spirit resides in us, he sheds a little more light in the darkness. Just like when David prayed, search me and know me and show me if there's any way of iniquity in me. And when we pray that prayer, he shines a little light there. And we again have the opportunity to embrace it with faith, to shy away from it in fear, or to reject it in fury 
because of what it says about us and what it challenges us to do. And then we have the interrogation. They are calling this guy in again and again. Now tell us one more time what's going on with you. And he can't answer all the questions. He doesn't know who Jesus is or how it all worked. But he gives a great testimony. He says, I can only say I was blind and now I see. How can you argue with that? Brother and sister, you do not need to be a great apologetic, apologetist, apologetic. Apologetist? Apologist, thank you. You don't have to be one of those. You don't have to convince people with the ontological argument or the whatever. You can say, I was one way, and now I'm completely different. The only thing that made that difference was him. I love that from the chosen. I love those shirts. No one can deny that testimony, and every single one of you has that testimony. Don't get into the weeds with people. Don't, you don't have to argue and go off on rabbit trails. Just say, I was blind, and now I see. I was dead, and now I'm alive. I was bound, and now I'm free. And if that's true for you, then it's a witness, and it's a light. And we're all able to and all called to do that. This guy is bold. I want to go over this again because he, he's got some chutzpah, all right? He's got some guts. And they asked him again, what did he do to you? How do you open your eyes? And he says, I've already told you and you didn't listen. This guy is talking to the religious leaders who can throw him out of the temple and he who had been nobody Blind on the streets, marginalized, a beggar is standing up to the most powerful people in his society saying, I told you, you ain't listening. That's a supernatural boldness, and it comes to us when the Holy Spirit comes to us. And then he really hits them. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to be his disciples too? I love this guy. He's bold. He's not afraid because the reality that he has now embraced and he knows surpasses anything anybody can ever do to him. They can kill the body, but he has an eternal home in heaven and he's been touched by the Savior of the universe. And they don't like that. And they throw him out of the synagogue. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin since birth. How dare you lecture us? And they kicked him out. Now, being kicked out of the synagogue is not like being kicked out of a biting harvest. Now, most of you are not on the get-to-be-kicked-out list, okay? You get, this, is the really, this is the A crowd here today. But if for some reason you were asked to leave a biting harvest, there's a hundred other churches within two-mile radius, Right? It's not going to affect your job. It's not going to affect your family. But if you were kicked out of the synagogue, there were deep consequences. In fact, people couldn't even come close to you. It was almost like during the COVID days, stay six feet away, unclean, unclean. That person is persona non grata. And it affects the relationship with their family, in their profession, in the life of the community. They are shunned, basically. And sometimes that could be for 
a week, 30 days for life. There was a risk, but that man was willing to take the risk because he had found that precious jewel that meant more than anything. You know, it's such a contrast. A few weeks ago, I was teaching about the man who was healed at the pool. Do you remember him, Mr. Whiny Pants? Jesus asked, do you want to be healed? Well, nobody helps me in the pool, and they get in first, and I've been by my back. And Jesus heals him, and what does he do? He ends up going to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are telling him, who is this guy? And when he finds out, he rats on Jesus. He had no boldness. He had no gratitude. And yet this man is ready to stand up and say, all I know is I was blind, but now I see. All I know is he's a prophet. All I know is God doesn't listen to sinners. He must be from God, and he never backed down, and he even needled them a little bit. You want to be his disciples too? I love this guy. What's also interesting about both of these cases is that both healings were done on the Sabbath. Jesus loved to heal people on the Sabbath. Now, in the, in the chosen, when he healed the man at the lame pool, they're like, well, why did you choose to heal him on the Sabbath? He says, well, sometimes it's good to start a little trouble. Jesus knew what he was doing. What is the Sabbath? The Sabbath was instituted after God had created everything beautiful, after he had prepared a place to have intimate fellowship with humanity. The whole purpose for creation was to enjoy a Sabbath rest with the Lord. And what is a better picture and that Sabbath rest with the Lord than for the lame to walk and the blind to see. Jesus was fulfilling the purpose of the Sabbath, and yet he was being condemned because they didn't understand God's purpose in the Sabbath. Also, both men have a second encounter with Jesus. After the healing and the interrogation, both of them meet Jesus again. And what we find in the first case, Jesus says to the lame man, formerly lame, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. This man did not get a revelation. This man did not get a special blessing. He got a rebuke from Jesus. But here we see the man who's responded in faith getting the greatest gift of all. Jesus heard that you were been thrown out, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man says, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I might believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. When God brings light into our life, when God opens our eyes, what he wants to do more than anything else is reveal himself to you. He wants the first thing you see is his face. It's me. It was always me. I've loved you from the beginning. And you never saw me. And you never knew me. And you walked in darkness. But I'm here. I'm here eye to eye. And I'm never going to leave you. That's what he calls every person to when he turns on the lights and 
we see reality for the first time. So what's the sign? Well, Jesus has already said, I'm the light of the world. There's a spiritual blindness as a result of the fall where we can't see God, where we don't know reality. Imagine if you were born blind. What would you know of the world? What you would know would be incomplete and mostly wrong. But Jesus came to show us reality. Jesus came to show us who he is and who we are. Suddenly our world is completely different. Our worldview has been shifted upside down. Suddenly I, I know there's a God in heaven. I know there's eternal life. I know there's forgiveness. I know there's wholeness. I know there's peace. And I can't fix it on my own, but I have a God who did it for me and invites me into life with him. There's nothing more contrasting from before Jesus to after Jesus. It's not a change in just in your behavior or a new set of friends or a new moral compass. It's a reality shift. It's everything I thought I knew I was wrong, and I've discovered a reality that is more beautiful and glorious than I could have ever imagined. Jesus came to turn the lights on. It's a picture of salvation. It's a picture of coming from death to life. We sang it earlier today, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I once was blind, now I see. A lot of songs, I saw the light. Shine, Jesus, shine. It speaks to salvation. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Jesus is the light of the world. In his grace, he's revealed himself to us, and he invites us into a new reality. But we have to choose the light. God does not force his will on anyone. He came to the world to offer his salvation. But there are those who can reject it. Jesus speaks, he said, for judgment I've come into the world so that the blind will see and those who will see will become blind. And some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and said, what? Are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. We have to acknowledge that we are blind and when the light comes, we have to walk into the light Embrace the light, even if it's bracing, even if it's shocking, even if there's an offense. That's the direction we go. Come to me. But we're not compelled to. We can walk the other way. Jesus comes in and turns on the light, and we can receive and accept it, but others will run and hide. Like cockroaches when you turn the light on, they scurry under the fridge. And if we continue to run from the light... There is a day and there is a moment where God can harden our hearts and we can no longer perceive the light anymore. John chapter 3, right after John chapter 3.16 where he says, whoever believes in me will not perish but have eternal life. We have this sobering statement. It says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. 
Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have, that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. No one is, has an excuse. The light has come into the world. The light has come into every life. God's grace precedes him, and that grace is light. And everyone has a touch, a spark of that light that has, that has confronted them. But we can turn into the darkness. Uh, in the next slide, you'll see a picture of a rather unattractive fish, the Ozark cavefish. This is a fish that by studying you, you can tell it once had eyes that perceived light and could see. But it chose to swim into the darkest caves and in the darkest parts of the waters until one day the eyes were closed and no light can be perceived anymore. And there are those that are walking in darkness that have rejected the light again and again and again and again and they are in danger of losing the opportunity to choose. And that is where we come in because Jesus says, I am the light of the world, but he says something else really powerful. He says, you are now the light of the world. You carry his light. I'd like to invite the praise team back up. And as they're coming up, I'd like us to think about the charge that we have. We are the bearers of light. We are the bearers of grace. We want to invite people to open their eyes and see the face of their Savior it's not too late. Just as Pastor Chris said, there is revival going on. There are eyes being opened. There is light shining in the darkness. And each one of you is a light shining in the darkness. Wherever you go, shine that light. Speak that truth. And the foundation of that truth is I once was blind and now I see. I once was dead and now I live. I once was lame and now I walk. And as you shine that light, you invite people to come into the light and to meet their Savior and to know life.